we have a very Hanukkah episode of Joe's Music. It's planned for an hour, but it might go for eight. Alani, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you missed God. the conversation. You realize it's a very Jewish episode of Josing for Jessica. Um, so we've. Uh, I'm All right, let's go with this. Uh, so for those who haven't joined us before, the Jessica series. It's on Marvel Net. Jessica Jones, the uh, latest live action adaptation of a Marvel comics. Um, I'm Brett, uh, one of the hosts of the show, and joining me is Alana. How you doing? I'm great. I'm great. Hugs and masks to everybody. Um, to most of you, uh, those of you who might be new to the show, um, our podcast is structured so that we only discuss things that have happened up through the episode that's the focus of this podcast. So this is podcast four, meaning that we'll be talking about predominantly episode four, of Jessica Jones, but we can also talk about, you know, episodes one, two, and three. We will not be going into spoilers for anything that's happened after that um, to the best of our ability. And I believe yeah. so far we have been able to maintain this. Um, well, yeah, there goes all my I, material, but okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, I know. I know you are. <laughs> I'm like, God, you better not be kidding. Okay. So let me introduce you. Uh, I'll have Brett introduce us to our guests who are both returning champions to the show. Yes, so we have uh, guests with every single sh- uh, show. We've got two tonight. Uh, we've got Kaufman, the assistant editor at Salon. He's taught at university, but then thought better of it. Uh, you can follow him at Scott Kaufman. And then we've got Sarah, who is Sarah Rasher is, among other things, a freelance writer based in Chicago. Uh and contributor to graphic policy. So you can catch her there uh, when she's not doing a whole bunch of other stuff. So welcome both of you to the show. Much appreciated. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I was joking on Twitter that this is our most academic episode yet, even though neither of you guys are currently doing that. It's still like I have two college professors on the same show to talk about Netflix. Well, I kind of like to take away our PhDs when we leave. I mean, we, we get to keep them. So <laughs> we're, we're completely still academic. So you means you're not actually yeah. recovered at all. Wait, what? That means you haven't cut, recovered at all. No, God, no. I don't think you ever get no. over it. Never Is it appropriate in a Jessica Jones podcast to be like, well, you never actually recover? Um, <laughs> oh. Ooh, yeah. nice segue. Yeah. <laughs> totally appropriate. Not at all going to make me cry a little bit. So... Um, the quick rundown for this episode is that, you know, when, when we were discussing this particular show uh, and thinking about who we wanted to have join us, Brett said that he felt that episode four um, of the show had a very Hitchcockian feel because there was lots of people following other people around. So there's certainly a pervasive air of paranoia and fear throughout it. Um, so, I, you know, I didn't feel like the cinematography was particularly evocative in of of any particular things that I recall. Like I wasn't like shot full of shot reverse shot kinds of things that I could identify when I was rewatching it. Scott will probably tell but, me that yeah, I'm wrong. Yeah, there definitely was. There was there was an homage to glow up in the middle of it. Um, the uh, the oh, Antonio yeah, film. Oh yeah, getting blown up totally. With and the there was a very important well, just... shot of a shower drain. Yeah, oh my God! Uh, there was a very important shot of a shower drain. Wow, you guys are good. Um, so we'll we'll get into that in just one sec. But um, 
But just generally speaking, it felt like this was an episode with a very specific uh, paranoid tone. And generally speaking, the show has been doing a job of solving one question or one specific discrete sub-mystery within each episode, if I, you know. Uh, and certainly the, the uh, there were actually two mysteries that were solved within this episode. There was the mystery of what is up with Eastman, her, uh, Jessica's new client. Is she was was her client sent by um, by Kilgrave? Uh, and the other mystery was the mystery of who the heck is following Jessica around taking photographs. So this is a very mystery laden episode. Uh, I just want to open it up to you guys now if you want to talk about anything from the episode, you know, sort of broadly, and and then we can maybe go into the to the episode uh, piece by piece afterwards. Yeah, uh, I can get started if you want. Uh, thematically, uh, the thing that really jumped out uh, about this episode for me was just how mediated every relationship was and how the camera work really reflected that. Like, you have, I mean, the obvious example is is um, Trish and Simpson, you know, having this weird first date through the door and through the intercom system on the door. But then all the stuff with photography, right? It's not, Kilgrave uh-huh. doesn't have direct access to Jessica. He's always going through intermediaries. And then the intermediaries are always are going through the intermediaries and they're, you know, in, in the form of the photograph. And then, you know, it, it, Eastman was referred to Jessica Jones by, I mean, there's, there's, there's so many, and I think this is a reason for so much paranoia, is that there's no good information. And um, there's, there's evidence, but it's not, it's not telling. And so a lot of the paranoia and then sort of what's driving the mystery is trying to strip down these mediated layers. And I love the fact that the audience got to do that um, in in, in the in the, uh, the vetting, I guess we'd say of the of the people who might have encountered Kilgrave uh, in, in in the law firm, right? Mm. We're actually figuring out who is and who isn't the legitimate. And so when we hear about the cellist, we're like, oh, definitely definitely legitimate. When we hear about the yeah. woman who has to just smile, we know. And also, it's that whole creepy, sexist, you know, smile honey yeah. thing. The world, you know, yeah. But I really, I, I really think, and, and it, it isn't just because the, the scene, like where I saw this before, was actually the the, the homage to blow up. But uh, uh, where I just sort of paid attention, oh, this is all about the getting from what's in between to some underlying reality. And and what I liked about the homage is that if you if you've seen Blow Up, the Antonioni film, uh, you know that at the end the underlying reality isn't very um, convincing. It's a bunch of mm-hmm. Mimes playing tennis without racket. I mean, it's like that's reality. No, that's that's not solving anything. Um, but that also makes say, this. Okay, go on. So I was just going to explain below for people. Um, it, it was a really interesting and very very like '60s, the Capital Six Zero film from uh, Antonioni that uh, deals a lot with, with the photographer who thinks he may have been witness to a crime or murder. Um, and there's a lot of people looking at images, uh, looking at photography um, is like one of the big motifs of, of the whole story, that and the Yardbirds playing in a club. That's really important for me. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> yeah, let's blow up. Uh, okay. Um, but yeah, that's anyway, a really I, good I, insight. I hadn't thought about it in terms of blow up. And, I, I, and you know, the, the way you mentioned it there with the, uh, it's all the shots of the like, hedges, um, that of people peeking over or under hedges, uh, looking at, at, yeah. at Jessica. Um, uh, 
you know, right after uh, Simpson passes up Malcolm and, and says, your spy's in there somewhere talking about the, the video. And then when she starts going through the video, she hedges, hedges, hedges. And I don't know about, I don't know, maybe New York's changed a lot. I haven't, I haven't been in, in over a decade. But uh, I don't remember there being that many fucking hedges in New York City. But, you know, maybe. No. <laughs> I mean, it's Bryant Park. But, yeah, it's not a very hedge-laden place. And Bryant Park is, like, has more, I mean, I don't know. I, I, it definitely seems like a deliberate choice. And certainly the way you're dealing with blowing up the image and enlarging the image, and the closer you get into the image, the blurrier things become, you know, Ooh, which is yeah. something which is, which is a metaphor for how sometimes the closer you get into the story, the more confusing it can be, is something from blow-up and is also something from the show. I mean, like, I, I want you know I'm going to break into that scene of her making the revelation and the discovery. Let's do that like later in the episode. Let's 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 uh, go okay. and stay a little bit earlier for now. Sarah, do you want to react to any of that or put any other big uh, big scenes out? Yeah, I mean I I missed the blow up reference, so I don't really have anything to add on that. But I loved that the thing that Scott immediately jumped to was that scene in the law firm when they're figuring out who is just you know on drugs or whatever and who actually has been affected by Kilgrave. And what's interesting is that you didn't mention the one that really hit me um, when I watched the episode, which was the guy who all that happened to him was he had his jacket stolen. Um, Mm. And what was fascinating about it was that the way that it happened was so traumatic that he is just as shaken as like the guy who abandon his child, that there's something so fundamentally traumatic about how Kilgrave functions that it doesn't matter how big, you know, whether it was just, you know, you're out a few hundred dollars or whether your wife left you and you're, you know, in trouble for child abandonment, that the fundamental trauma is that deep no matter what it is Mm. and that that was really striking and the way that it came back at the end where Audrey Eastman's entire motivation really was her own trauma at another kind of catastrophic event that she can't escape and that when we're so used to seeing superhero stories where really awful things happen to people and psychologically they bounce back, to see the opposite where very seemingly small things happen to people and they cannot shake it is just a really fascinating subversion. I did get a bit of a Patrick Bateman vibe off that guy, though. So, I, I mean, he, he mentioned he was a $5,000 jacket, which for him mm-hmm. might constitute a trauma. I don't know. I just – but I but I see I see your point, and I, I like that reading of it better, actually. It's just an, yeah. an after effect of, of being robbed of your will. Um, mm-hmm. For him, I it, felt it, – I was going to say, I got the vibe uh, that it was almost like the alpha guy finding out he's not as alpha as he thought. Huh. Like that was the vibe yeah, I got from him that he was this guy is probably an asshole in life and does this sort of stuff to other people and then here comes Kilgrave who shows him he's that idiot by taking his jacket. Well, it's interesting because they specifically said it happened to him on the L train and happening to him on the L train and what that entails to you as a viewer depends on how familiar you are with the state of Williamsburg, Brooklyn today. Myself, as someone who lived in Williamsburg for 12 years, um, I'm very aware of the fact that 
you could definitely look at and say, yeah, a guy with a $5,000 jacket can certainly live in Williamsburg now because those are the only people who can afford the new condominiums um, and read it as being like the alpha thing which you just described, which is actually not my immediate read from his performance, but I totally get why you would feel it, take it, take it that way. Or if also be mugged by a small British guy. I mean, that, that, that oh, also yeah. has to be emasculated. No, no, they are the same <laughs> For body. that kind of no, a person. They panned it. His body is the same body. No, the reason why, you remember that look that Pan, that just yeah. gives, she looks up his body and down his body, and his body, he just has the same figure as, um, as David Tennant. I can tell, and I'm not a Doctor Who expert, but I could tell by the way they were setting it up that I was supposed to in, intuit that this is, and as they pan up, you would almost expect the face to be David Tennant's, in fact. Uh, but then it's his face because he's totally wearing an outfit that Kilgrave would wear, and he's the right measurement for the guy. Yeah, and I and I read it very much guy. the same way Alana's doing. I think it's interesting to have the, that the two that the two men in the call are kind of mm-hmm. going. They're saying, "Oh, it's emasculating, and it's you know, it's this you know douchebag brain brought down to size." And Alana and I are thinking even like. It's somebody who, you know, thinks of himself as, you know, an affluent white man, and here is this guy telling him to take his clothes off in public. Yeah, totally. And totally. And, and who is, yeah, and, and the way he's being shot, yeah, it's about his body. And the more you look at it, it's the, the more it's like, here is the guy who does who doesn't have compassion for that kind of action being put in a position that not only are women frequently in that position, but that often women are blamed for being put in that position. The, the one, the one thing I would, I would say about that shot, though, is that that in, in in that shot sequence, when we're we're in Jessica Jones's head, that's the first person point of view shot when she asks mm. him or makes him stand up and then looks him up and down. And I, I think what, what she's doing isn't sort of judging him. I think she's, it dawned on her that if he wanted, if, if Kilgrave wanted his jacket, let's see what else he's wearing. And then she notices that, you know, he's, he's wearing whatever, whatever that, you know, $5,000 jacket looked like, it, it goes with purple. Um, that, that's what stood out to me. It was all purple. Yeah. And, and, and that the whole clothing like looked like something you would a Kilgrave would wear. Like they have the same sense of style. Yeah, and so that that's and so I don't think I don't think I, I think we're meant to see that shot as a continuation of the of Jessica's point of view shots that have been playing out throughout that whole sequence. And she has the, a momentary I mean, flashback. I'm being too. nitpicky, but no, no, and she has a momentary flashback on him as well. Like when you when she sees him, like she has a brief flash of Kilgrave when she looks at it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there is yeah. there any significance to the purple? Because anyone else find it odd that this guy has his, his suit stolen and he goes out and gets a full purple thing again? I, I don't know if I would want to wear like the exact same thing I got mugged in. I I when I've been I haven't been mugged, but I've been robbed and I've replaced things one for one to the best I could. But I, I, I but being robbed is not the same as being mugged. I will completely acknowledge that. Yeah, I, I, I really can't. Yeah, I mean, like it's just and to it's me, just like it's purple. Yeah, to me, it's just like you know they don't explain the purple. I mean, in, in the series, I don't think he's ever called the purple man. No, uh, no. So not in the show. Yeah, the show. So, uh, to me, yeah, it, 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 flashbacks. Flashbacks. 
all of all of her flashbacks that are you know the the kill the when I was under Kilgrave's influence point of view shots are all tinted purple, right? I mean, so mm-hmm. we're obviously I mean, like I said earlier, you know, it, we're flagged to see purple and think Kilgrave. Um, and speaking of color, I want to do something about the colors with regards to Audrey Eastman early in this episode. So. Audrey Eastman one. I mean, this woman is so well cast. This actress just nails it. Like, she is so believable as a rich Manhattan woman. Like, she just channels that. She comes in with gold sparkly shoes and the red perfect coat and the red definitely Kate Spade handbag. Coming into Jessica Jones's office, putting her bag down, like, you see the little nameplate that's like, yeah, this is like a Kate Spade bag. And she's up opposed by these very drab olive walls. Like, the, the color of Jessica Jones's lobby, not lobby, like uh, main room of her office apartment, like whatever. Like I'd never really noticed the color of the walls before, but boy, did I notice that in that scene. And the wall color is just so drab and Eastman is so polished and so brightly colored. And of course, one of the reasons why she has these bright colors is so that Jess, we can follow Jess following her more easily, right? Because we can follow her coat and we could follow her bag. And in fact, when we finally have a reveal that she's the one hiding in the bedroom with Carlo what is it that we see that's the first proof other than hearing her voice duplicated is seeing the red bag through the window. But um, I do also just want to sort of call out those sort of color choices in contrast to Jess and Jess's colors. Because Jess, you know, like she was the most basic, the most blending in with the world um, uh, outfit in the world. And she just wears like gray and black. And like she just wears gray and black all the time. And Eastman comes in and she's very bright and very recognizable and very much easy to follow and to be seen. And there's also, I mean, the, the obvious reflection of sort of, I mean, there's there's like class warfare going on between them in the hallway, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which is which I think is reflected like the dull palette is associated with, and and also the, the lenses that they're using is, is sort of associated with with poverty. And yeah, you, ha- you know, having Jessica Hecht, uh, the the woman who played Eastman, come in, and you know that brightly colored. It almost, it almost makes her seem not like a superhero, but it's sort of she's too larger than not than life. But her her color scheme is just out of sorts with the reality that she's in, and it mm. calls attention to herself as much as a cape would. I mean, like I mean, they could have gone full full tilt and put her in you know like one of those Manhattanite capes that 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 people wear if they're obnoxious, and. Um, <laughs> I like those. It, it wouldn't have been out of place. Well, I mean... <laughs> I also oh, like the jewelry that she designed, so it's okay. I understand. Um, they had a lot yeah. of fisheye shots in the hall. I wasn't entirely sure if they were using a fisheye lens or simply the effect of the hallway being narrow as it did made it look like a fisheye lens, but I felt like a lot of the hall shots, both in here and in um, doop doop in uh, Trish Walker's hallway, like a very sort of fisheye look to them. Well, the and then makes her feel a lot more paranoid. Her, her hallway, I think, fish-y. is a, is, is a fisheye because it, it's 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 on that little screen, and so we're they're they're using just a slight. It might not even be a fisheye lens. It might just be a post production fisheye effect to make oh. it look as if the you're you're staring like they're staring at the the little hole in the door, right? The peephole. Um, just to sort of highlight the the fact that we have an inside and outside here, which is you know doesn't really doesn't sound that profound until you think about all of the what it takes for the inside and outside to actually break down in, in this episode. Um, 
um, mm. you know, a battering ram. This is ram also the first or, episode in which um, Jessica has a door. Yes. <laughs> yes, this is true. <laughs> that is a barrier she has sort of gone along. And the neighbor can't get into the apartment. There's a lot of stuff with doors. Yeah. And the Jessica, whole, I, and I wanted to go back to the scene, but it might, I might as well bring it up. Uh, the scene where Hogarth takes the her mistress out to the restaurant where she proposed to her wife, and that entire confrontation takes place basically in a doorway. Yeah. Nice. So yeah. There's a lot yeah. of there's a lot of conversations in doorways. Also, the actress who plays Hogarth's wife is so good, and I don't remember her name, but she is so good. Uh, uh, Robin Weigart. Jane, Thank you. Yeah, Jane think... from Deadwood. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah she just nailed it. That, that, that they, she just was so good in that scene. I was very impressed. Yeah, I, I um, root for her constantly, and just just because mm-hmm. I still see Calamity Jane, and <laughs> it's just goddamn you, Deadwood. Um, uh, I never yeah, no, I, I like the. Oh, sorry, go on. Oh, um, but speaking about doors, so we got to see, you know, we got to see uh, Sad Cop try to burst through the door, and the fact that he, uh, for Trisha's apartment, and the fact that he can't demonstrates to us that her door actually is secure, um, which was an interesting thing to have tested and proven, I suppose, um, that at least physically, physically secure at least. And I just love the way Trish shows him her neck and says, I am not all right. That was like really powerful and very well acted moment um, for 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 her. Yeah, I was a little I don't know. And a lot of this is just the discomfort that the show itself generates. But but man, those scenes with Simpson where he wants to help, but he's actually the both the perpetrator and the victim, like those scenes just cut me up. And I mean, that's it's why I actually had to watch the show like two episodes at a time. I couldn't sort of mm-hmm. take the unrelenting emotional turmoil it caused. Um, but yeah, those, those, it's just, it's sort of, it's sort of hard for me. Like that's why you need a door because that man out there with good intentions has a battering ram and he's trying to break in. And it's just, it, it, it it's sort of, and without saying anything about future episodes, it, it, it's a it's a brilliant way to sort of play up the conflict that that is going to be so central to the rest of the series, which is, you know, there are these these people who do horrible things are victims. Um, I mean, the thing is, I mean, that's true, and it's really, it's, I have a hard time with Simpson. Like, like I won. I recognize that I'm not the most like woohoo cops person. Um, especially when, like, White Cop has such a White Cop moment of tackling Malcolm in the hallway for no fucking reason, but which is a great thing that the show included because it's highly accurate of cops tackling people in their hallway for no fucking reason because they're black. Um, but also just that he has, yes, like, he is a victim, but he also is completely centering his victim experience in all of his interactions with Trish. Like, he keeps re-traumatizing her. He keeps caring. He's worried more about what's going to make him feel better about what he did to her then he is worried about how she feels. Like every time he shows up, he's making her feel worse. Like when he tries, when he goes and shows up and is like, wants to give her the gun, that isn't making her like, he, he, you know, he, he wants to make things right. And he does not want to accept that him just going away and leaving her alone is actually the thing that would be feel best for her. He just keeps centering his trauma over hers. 
But I think that's kind of how trauma works. And I feel like, and I'm going back to the scene with Hogarth again, because it was a much more, it wasn't even really trauma, it's just a failing marriage. Um, but the, the lengths that Hogarth goes to to not make herself the bad guy in a relationship mm. where she's really the bad guy and where it's easy to see that. Um, but what, what's happened, you know, in my experience with real-life trauma is that all that at a certain point all you can do is try to make yourself feel better. And so even the people who really maybe objectively don't deserve to feel better and in a perfectly altruistic world would realize that it is their job to comfort those who are afflicted the most, that's not really how people work and that's not how trauma works. And as much as you know, we're sitting on the couch going, oh, my God, he's really just trying to soothe himself at her expense. Yes, that's what he's doing because he can't see beyond his own trauma. But at least he's doing it. And I think the episode, that's really great because the episode sets it up really nicely. We have the contrast between how Simpson is dealing with his trauma and how Eastman is dealing with hers. Eastman is lashing out at, 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 at anyone who's, quote, unquote, gifted, right? Whereas Simpson is at least, and it sounds bad, but he's at least targeting the right person. He knows to whom he needs to make amends in order to feel mm. better. He's not just trying to take out the first gifted person he runs across. And one one question I had, and I don't know, maybe y'all can answer this. How the fuck did Eastman figure out that, that, that Jessica Jones was, was gifted in the Spiris. first place. Like, apparently, she, like, sells jewelry to Spiris' wife, and Spiris said something. Like, she says that within the episode. It does sound yeah. very, like, random or whatever, but... Yeah, it, to I just me, didn't that... get that, because the whole conversation about, you know, at the end, where she's like, well, me and my 99 friends are going to make sure, makes it seem as if Eastman has no idea, really, about... But I guess if this is the one gifted person she could find... Said, that, yeah, so, that in that... In that scene, she said, oh, she doesn't have laser eyes. And the only one that Jessica said that I'll melt you with our laser eye, or my laser eyes that we know of oh, that's is, right. is the strip yeah. club owner. So the, the she episode, over, yeah. yeah, so the strip club owner is talking to her, and she decided to go after Jessica in vengeance. Like, to me, this is one of the, the weaker plot lines. Like, the whole setup yeah. of whether or not she's with Kilgrave, you know, working for Kilgrave and all that's good, but I think the payoff is poor. Um, and I think the series does it, yeah. that a lot. But I, this, I, I, I sort of, I, I'm sort of convinced. I like the contrast between authentic and inauthentic reactions to trauma, in which Eastman I just sort of... I don't find Audrey believable, like, that she would actually try to, like, kill Jessica... Like, I could imagine her trying to start, like, you know, protests outside of her house and demagogue against her, like, whatever. You know, doing people, I mean, basically, Jessica is, was about to be a victim of a hate crime, right? Like, Eastman was going to do a hate crime against, quote, gifted, quote, gifted people. But I, I but realistically, But she like, saw her like, mother crushed to death. I mean, that. Yeah, murder doesn't that, seem like, it seems like she might be trying to, like, drive her out of business or, like, make her lose her apartment. But, like, shooting her, that just sort of seemed a little bit not likely for a person to attempt to do. 
murder a super. You're thinking like what you would do, though. Whereas I'm thinking, yeah, there, there, there are people that their that their instinct is violence and not organized protest. Well, so there was a there's well, other thing. In, the violence is going to work. It's like you think you're going to take out a superhero, really? Like you're just. But like, in that scene, I. A, I think we're missing a key thing in that scene is that like when when Jessica first comes in, the gun's pointed at her and um, she says something about get her on the her husband, get her on the plastic. And the husband's like, wait, I didn't sign up for this. Like, I'm out. So I'm not convinced her idea, her killing Jessica was her original plan and that she was she's just a goofball who was kind of making up as a go like the husband's reaction to me, makes it seem like it, they probably planned something else, and that her. I don't know. People have seen enough episodes of Dexter to know what what the plastics for. I mean, you can't just mm-hmm. like, why are we carrying yeah. all this, you know, plastic it, around? Yeah, but that husband's react to me tells me that like they probably had a conversation at a certain point or something else to that, because he's just mm-hmm. like, wait, I didn't sign up for this, and he's like, I'm out of here. I think he actually says like, I'm out of here. I want a divorce. Uh, because I wanted to divorce. Yeah, yeah he said, at, and afterwards he said I wanted to divorce, which to me makes me think is she told him something else of like, uh, yeah, I would sit there and be like, dude, you're wearing plastic. I mean, no, no stand up. What stand on the tarp means? Um, yeah. The other side of this is that is that Eastman is clearly playing this as sort of a, a gun fetishist's response to terrorism, right? I mean, hmm. the gifted people destroyed our city. Hmm. I'm going to you know, John Wayne it out here and take one of them down. I mean, this is, a, I mean, obviously we've seen this for the past, Jesus, two years, three years, five years now with, with mm-hmm. every time there's another shooting. It's, if there were only more people there with guns, you know, so we have more crossfire because that'll make less people killed somehow. Um, you know, but I think she clearly kind of sees herself as, as you know, the proverbial good guy with a gun. Um, mm-hmm. And she's, attacking a terrorist and I mean that her logic is especially as in New York I mean she she should know better um, I don't know I, I I actually I was satisfied with that sort of plot resolution in part because it was so messy um, I mean the whole episode was pretty messy but I sort of liked that um, <laughs> the whole fucking series is actually uh, but, there certainly was a lot of, you know, I, I really enjoyed all the Jessica following her around and Jessica being followed and all of that sort of paranoid cinema moments also, I thought were, were well done. We also get to see some, like, subtle, cool use of the powers. Like, there's a scene with her really high up, just, like, perched between two buildings <laughs> with her back to one or legs against the other. So it was, like, it was a good use, like, good use of that plot to show other stuff subtly. And I, thought that, I, think I kept waiting for Spider-Man example. to pop in next to her. Um, <laughs> that's sort of the so classic cute. Spider-Man shot, right? Of yep. him observing yeah. someone from... But, uh... Well, and, it was, and it was also yeah. a way for them to tie it into the bigger Marvel Universe. Like, it's something this entire series hasn't really... It doesn't do a lot. And they, they mentioned, you know, the, it's all references to the first Avengers film. Um, she says the big green guy or the flag waver... Um, you know that it's it's really kind of to me the like the scene is the like this okay we're tied into the greater Marvel universe here you go like this is about how how connected we are to everything. I think they really played it down. I mean, 
Yeah. They, they, they never say anybody's name. They never. Um, nope. There's there's no appearance by by Daredevil even. Yeah. But doesn't that feel like that. more realistic because of that? I don't know. My impression of Hell's Kitchen has always that it wasn't really that big. Of a like, it, isn't well, no, it like eight by eight block? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. More or less. I mean, they're on each other's territory. You would expect. Yeah. Some overlap. But she spends a good I mean, amount I, of time in Soho. Like just as like you know, she spends a good amount of time. I was trying to identify actually which park it was that um, she's having her conversation with Trish outside of. I think it might be that park that's right across from the Village Voice, which would put it in the East Village. But I think a lot of, um, you know, she, she's in other parts of the city within this episode in a few different places and ways. But, but the Marvel Universe takes place in an alternate reality where Hell's Kitchen is the size of Queens and has never gentrified. So Yeah. <laughs> That is the it's the only way to explain it. You just sort of have to move on. Yeah, it's true. One thing I actually, I just coming up now through this, I, I, I hadn't mentioned this earlier when we first met uh, the cop, Simpson. It, it, he looks like a mixture between Chris Evans' Captain America and, like, a regular dude. So if you, like, took Chris Evans' Captain America and, like, just dialed it back down to, like, normal dude levels, that would be Simpson. And it's, it's, it has to be a deliberate choice. They, the, 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 leather, the dark brown leather jacket, which is a very dark brown leather jacket that he wears when he's not in his cop outfit, is the same color as the, as the, as the jacket that you see Cap in a lot um, when he's out of uniform. Um, I think that, 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 is, that is deliberate and... and without talking about future episodes, there's a reason why he he would be emulating Captain America or idolizing. Oh, I'm Like, you sure. could imagine like, him having even, a yeah. wall yeah. of cutouts. Yeah, and Captain of, America is real. Like, and if you, you know, he, he, he wants to, he goes a long way to try to convince Patsy that he's always been the guy who tries to help people. But I just mean from a casting standpoint, the show is clearly trying to make us visually, like, see some sort of connection between him and Cap, and also sort of like he's like a little bit more of like a normal Cap as opposed to like actual Chris Evans, who's like too good looking for this world. Cap, basically. He reminds, looks wise, he reminds me a lot of Aaron Eckhart. Yeah, he, he, yeah. Uh, which becomes irony, really? which is a little ironic compared to of what happens later. Yeah. I don't know. Um, Aaron Eckhart had the world's biggest chin, and I don't. And squarest, <laughs> both biggest and squarest. And this guy has. A square jaw, but it's not like, wow, that guy has a square jaw. I don't know. I thought it was Aaron Eckhart for a second, too, so I think you're outnumbered. <sighs> okay. They both have chin dimples. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the chin dimple. Okay. You could be okay. Aaron Eckhart's younger brother is the way I kind of just would describe, describe them. If, like, they okay. came together and you're like, hey, they're both brothers, I'd be like, okay, I can totally see it. Okay. So that that definitely, to me, was a, a deliberate piece. Um any thoughts about the significance of Jessica deleting the photos of Luke in terms of symbolism or anything beyond that, obvious, her trying to protect him after having violated his privacy? Okay. Um, well, in my chronology of the things, we are now at the point in which, 
Well, you definitely see throughout the episode Jessica, you know, having paranoid reactions to people who she encounters on the street, like people taking photos who are not actually taking photos of her and things like that. Um, I definitely think one of the, the scariest moments in the show, though, is when the little girl who's under Kilgrave's control walks up to Jess and says, Patsy Walker is safe now. And, like, the way she sort of moves her mouth, it looks like she's not even controlling the words. I mean, she's not, but she really looks... The words look extra disassociated from her, even beyond what other people have said. And it's especially disturbing, given what we've been talking about, how the experience of, of having your will removed affects you traumatically, even if it's only about a, a suit jacket. I mean, you did that to a six-year-old girl, which... I don't know, maybe she's at an age where it won't bother her as much, but on the other hand, childhood trauma, yeah, yeah, it's sort of... I think she's very traumatized at the end of that scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's not clear whether, like, the mother assumes that she's afraid of Jessica, but it doesn't really seem like like that's what she's afraid of. It sounds like she's just incredibly spooked. Yeah. Yeah. But she has a great there, casting with that little girl too. That was perfect. Mhm. I mean, that definitely is the most like disturbing thing that we've seen Kilgrave do up until that point. I think um, was weaponize a little girl, basically. Yeah. Well, I mean, it it it, it hammers on the point that anyone is a threat, um, or everyone is mm-hmm. a threat, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, which we sort of know abstractly, but um, you know he can send legions at her now. Um, And it it makes what seems... I mean, and and I saw this on some of the... When I wrote that thing for Salon a couple weeks ago uh, about MRAs, uh, the men's rights movement people, and and this show and how Kilgrave isn't like an object lesson so much as a hero uh, to their way of thinking. Um, (laughs) Uh, that, it's you know, true. I mean, where, yeah, it's... it's Preach. But uh, <laughs> with the... they A lot of them were, compl- you know, in, in the way that they sort of reversed the polarity of, 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 of sympathy in in these episodes, what ends up happening is that Jessica Jones is the um, college student who cried rape and is overreacting, and Kilgrave is the um, look. I I was just I just talked to her, and then we ended up having sex, guy. Um, you know, we had a drink, and then we we fucked. It, it's there. When you see that little girl, like to be able to maintain that 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 argument after seeing what he's doing to children, it, it takes a truly disturbed mind. And not that I have to convince y'all that the men's front movie mm-hmm. people are are severely disturbed, but. But it, it makes their, you know, sort of contrarian reading of it even more creepy. Um, wait, wait, wait. So I don't follow the MRAs as much as you do because it's kind of your job and also because you're a dude. Yes, and that's I my job. Shit. They, like, this is your job. So are, you, are there MRA guys who are going around and actually defending Kilgrave? Yes. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I, uh, I'm... I, I can, I'll try to find a link to my article. It's like two weeks ago, so I've written oh, like 800 read more since. I couldn't spoilers. I'm, I'm watching this show as we record it. I, I can't read anything with spoilers. Oh, okay. Yeah, and um, I, I, have not, I have not gone ahead of episode four either. Although, um, the, the way that I figured out how to put it, because I, I have casting spoilers that I couldn't avoid because Internet, um, 
I don't think anybody's avoided that anyway. Um, yeah. The other thing that's been happening, and not in as large numbers as Alana and I had feared when we were talking about this, but there are, you know, the um, sort of apologist fangirls of the actor who plays Kilgrave who are positioning him as, you know, this, like, wounded villain who only needs to learn to love type of thing, um, which um, which to me comes from very much the same place of wanting to apologize for things that disrupt your sense of sort of nar- narrative order and character type order. Uh, character type, because I'll say as a, as a Doctor Who fangirl myself, um, uh, and David Tennant in particular, they're they're deliberately playing with that on uh, on the yeah. they cast him not yeah. just because and that's why instead of having him use his Scottish accent because he is Scottish he's actually using his voice as as ten uh, the, the tenth doctor he's using the English accent that he created for that role for this mm-hmm. so they're deliberately making him attractive to that subset of the audience. I mean, there, there's, well, there's a this point. Is evil doctor, like because the doctor has, you know, I'm not really literate in who, but we've had other folks on the show. Amanda Mockat probably mentioned this on her episode. You know, like the doctor is somebody who shows up and people go along with what he says. And this well, is what I, absolutely. In fact, on on the season finale of, of the last week, I mean, they, you know, when when he takes on an armada, they're like, well, why don't we sit down and talk to him? And they were like, no, 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 no. weapons are words are his weapons, words are his weapons. I mean, that that that. You know, that's a, that's a huge theme in Doctor Who. And so having him sound like the Doctor, I mean, it gave me chills. When it, and this is, this is, I guess, the, like, least important spoiler ever. But at one point in the series, he responds to someone by saying, brilliant. And he says it just like 10. And I, it's just, mm. it, you know, my brain goes in two different directions. I don't know if that's already happened or it will happen, but that's not really a big spoiler. I, I, I think that's that that but it's, yeah. But I yeah, think more generally, terrifying. like, there, there's been something really, there's always been something really ominous to me about Doctor Who. And the best way I can think of to describe it is someone on the internet once asked me, asked me like, wouldn't you want to, like, be the Doctor's sidekick and <laughs> travel through space and time and have all these adventures? And, and I'm like, but he's controlling it. Like, you're going where he wants to go. Not and that really. there's something... In classic um, two, the TARDIS, the TARDIS goes where it wants to go. He's sort of, he can try to go where he wants it to go, but he can't control it. And then in the new who, they're, they're very sort of explicit, but he's, he's yeah, then he's not fully flat. in control. But certainly, yeah. following that path, you're not in control either, as yeah. as the companion. It, it's more like someone oh. threw a choose your own adventure novel at your head, and it just fell up open on, you know, some page. You knew you were going to get some sort of scuba adventure, but you had no idea where you were going to end up. Um, but, uh, right, see, but I, yeah, I mean, my my point yeah. is more like, yeah, there's this total loss of control there in becoming, yeah, it, in being a doctor, but mm-hmm. especially in becoming the companion. So and, it's, sort of, and, it's, sort of, it's sort of playing with that, I think. Yeah, it maps perfectly onto Kilgrave and his victims. Yeah, um, it, I mean it's more literal in that it's 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 his gift, but uh, he doesn't have to convince people the way the doctor does. Um, but I mean it's yeah, 
Yeah, I mean that was that was something I was conflicted of the entire run of the series, and you know, just like it's David Tennant, man. It's ooh, but it just makes it even more just a perfect casting. Um, yeah, for real. I want to just dig a little bit deeper into the sequence with Trish and uh, the cop. Um, both of them, both the sequence where he's outside of her door and they have the conversation, you know, on either side of the door, and then afterwards when they're both across from each other on the table. Um, it sounds like, I mean, I know I have a lot of thoughts about that, but I wanted to open that up to our panelists first. Sleepless in Health Kitchen? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it 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 was it was bad rom com, um, but it was but it's one I think a function of of her having been a television star and and she at least at this point in the series is still really beholden to these sort of conventional narratives like she she hasn't gotten past the out of her head yet like this is how life is supposed to work um, at this point and 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 the whole Kilgrave thing sort of makes you know, forces her out of that narrative, but she slips back into it so easily, and this is the, this is the place. It's like, ah, oh, he gave me a gun. He wants me to protect myself, so he went out and got me. That is so romantic. No, I didn't read that from her at all. I loved the look on her face when she opens up the gun, and she's worried about it, and she just has the smallest bit of sort of, like, aroused excitement holding up the gun, to the uh, video thingy and pointing it at him, at which point, by the way, we find out that Trish has a wrist tattoo, um, which I could not read what it said. Um, but that is not, no, she is taking pleasure in, 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 in aiming the gun at him through the video screen as a reclamation of her power. Sarah? Yeah, sorry. Me up here? <laughs> I'm listening. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in in a second. I'm trying to stop coughing, okay. actually. Oh no! Um, but you know, like I actually thought, generally speaking, I am so terrible. I forgot her name. The actress who plays Trish. I feel like there are moments where she's outstanding, and other moments where I feel like she's acting like she's acting. Which, given the character's background as an actress, maybe is deliberate. Um, but this is one of the scenes where I was like, "Wow, she's fucking good." Sometimes um, there was like so it's many. It's a bit of the Sarah Michelle Gellar syndrome, I think. Because that, that's oh. what I call. That's what I call any actor or actress who is brilliant at one moment and just seems like they don't even know belong on screen the next mm-hmm. Sarah mm-hmm. Michelle Gellar syndrome. Just cause, is, is Sarah going to fight you over that? <laughs> no, I mean, I, no, I think, that, I think that's I'm accurate. I'm the biggest Buffy fanatic has... in the world. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, yeah. We can go through all the um, episodes of Buffy one by one by name and I can list you the scenes in which she's good and which she really isn't. Um Although I think you might be able to make an argument that that's a flaw in um, in in the Buffyverse show running because I can think of moments like that for almost every actor on that show. Except for the ones that are such pros that they're beyond it. Um, but yeah, there there's I, I feel I feel like there's a lot of like charisma Carpenter and. Um, Nicholas Brendan and Allison Hannigan all have that disease. Hmm. Interesting. Especially in later seasons. Um, when Marty I was going to say, yeah. Um, well, it depends on which one. But, yeah, I feel like, I feel like the, the, the acting lapses are kind of part of the charm of that show. But I agree with you that, that it applies here, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
So uh, for me, one of the one of the oh my god, did she nail it scenes where these one was was the one of her like refusing to let him in and keeping him uh, at distance, and her just like raising up the gun to the name to the nameplate, and you know she's not going to fire it because that would destroy expensive technological equipment that she depends on. But the, you know all the little micro expressions on her face throughout that sequence are just so like subtle and interesting and revealing. I think of her character. Although now, now because we brought up the whole acting thing, I wonder if she's just literally trying to figure out what the what the skin she can't help but sort of show that on her face. I mean, I know a lot of actors yeah. who do that when 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 you when you when you ask them a question and they think about it, you, you almost feel like they're looking at themselves in a mirror and trying to contort their face into the appropriate response. Um, I think it's just something that you know comes with the craft. That, that well, makes I sense certainly now. did not know. What, I had no idea what he was going to give her. I, I maybe I should have guessed it was a gun, but I really had no idea. So it was a reveal to me. And when he when I saw it, I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. That that's what he would give her. And I took it as him saying, like, this is protection, not just from like Kilgrave. This is protection from me in case I'm bad. Did you know what I mean? That's sort of how I read that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, There's still that yeah, sort of unsettling. Here, be self-empowered, kind of thing to it. That just sort of irks me a little bit. Like, hmm. you know, I'm so glad I could self-empower you or enable your self-empowerment. <laughs> it, right? It, there's just something about that logic that 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 just strikes me as a little, I don't know, icky. But um, no one gets weirded out point. by this whole thing of someone being like, "Here, have a gun," and when you're like, "Is the gun clean?" or whatever, however she states it, and he, he's like, "No," and he's like, "Nope." Nope. Like, no, that's when she smiles. No, the, when she smiles is when he says the gun is not legal. That is when she has her first positive reaction to it. But she, when he says yeah. it's unmarked. I, I have that in my notes. What was interesting about it, and especially because I watched the episode twice, um, the second time, like today, to make sure that I actually remember what happened in it. Um, but uh, what's interesting is that when you know about... Um, Eastman with the gun at the end of the episode, it loops back in an interesting way because mm. you, then you're thinking like, okay, here's another woman trying to protect herself with a gun and she shoots Jessica and it's like, oh, not bulletproof, but she's fine. So it's like, what kind of protection is it even really? And what does it say that he's, that he's got this mentality that a gun will even protect her? Oh, a very reoccurring theme in this episode is people, it's Jessica saying that she doesn't want cops and saying she doesn't want help from the authorities and saying that cops aren't going to help. So I definitely think like that is sort of connected with that conversation within the, within the episode. Interestingly, also, though, like Kilgrave the way can, talks, can just tell you to shoot yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't fucking matter. But also, the other yeah. way, but, a way that, but a way that a cop actually could help and that nobody proposes during this episode or ever, which kills me, is that Simpson is a very believable witness to a lot of juries. And if he testified in Hope's case saying that he was mind-controlled, he doesn't have to say that, like, you know, he was mind-controlled and tried to kill, you know, Trish. He could simply say that he, like, you know, that he experienced mind-control. There's ways he could be handled. His testimony would go a long way. You know, as he is a voice of authority that people are generally speaking, unless they're me, are going to trust. And, like, nobody even brings that up as a potential. And certainly, like, you know, when when Jess is talking to all the victims, there's, like, you know, 
that had initially been something that they had set up to try to find more victims who could corroborate what happened to Hope, right? But there's not even a but moment that's also, of just... That's, the other thing to remember is that's also the jury pool. So, you know, if a cop is saying it, that, I mean, it makes sense. Like, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. this whole random sampling of people who, who are, you know, who show up in an office and then are, are, are asked a bunch of questions in order to, deter, to determine if they're fit to join a select group. I mean, that, that's how juries are selected. And, and yeah, I think you're right that, that, that if, if they had sort of, you know, honed in on the fact that as, as an authority figure, Simpson would appeal to these people. Um, although, uh, do you get the sense that at least at this point in the series that the whole, yeah, we're going to, we're going to go with the mind control defense is, it's a little just her uh, stringing Jessica along. It's not really serious at this point yet, I don't think. Um, like she's almost just humoring Jessica uh, with continuing. She is her. But it's sort of hanging I mean, out there. I mean, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. It's hard, it's hard to talk about this without going, jumping forward episodes, so I'll, I'll just drop this, this line, of, line of pussy. Uh, but... Um, I think one thing that that I, you know, we we, we jumped back to Eastman and the whole idea of, of of people with guns, and I think it's really significant that that when she's actually shooting Jessica with a gun, which you know obviously offers her so much protection, um, she keeps on saying "you people," which is, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, a dog whistle for liberals. Anytime anyone starts saying "you people" a lot. Right, you're 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 in the presence of bigotry, and and man, do they hammer that home? Ethan's like, you people, when you people destroyed the you people, right? And the the whole idea of linking that rhetoric with you know vigilante justice is so Bernie gets right. I mean, it's it's it just mm-hmm. it's right. It, it it. And I mean, obviously, you know, in a superhero show. You can't really knock vigilantes given that, especially since we're on the cusp of the whole Civil War or Captain America 3 Civil War thing. So we're, we're going to get the whole vigilante thing. But obviously it's already just theme has played out, you know, pretty prominently in, you know, Chris Nolan's Batman film stuff. But, um, but yeah, the idea that, that sounding like Donald Trump and you're heavily armed and you're going to do good. Like, I sort of like that the, the episode came down highly critical of that with, Jessica destroying whoever's apartment that really was. I sort of felt <laughs> sorry for. I mean, I just did. You even feel like they, they they got the apartment on you know Airbnb and they just showed up there to murder Jessica, and then Jessica trashed the place, and those those people are going to come back and be like, oh, what the fuck? Um, Head cannon accepted. You, yeah. <laughs> Um, and, well, and what's interesting from what you're saying is that because Jessica more than anybody with superpowers that we've really seen in the Marvel Universe is after there's the one guy on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and I don't want to get into that, but um, that for the most part, we see people who have superpowers seeing it as their duty and their destiny to go be vigilantes, whereas Jessica's like, nope, I am a licensed private investigator, (laughs) and that is what I do, and everything I do is completely within the law, and... You know, vigilante not for me and not my job and not my responsibility. Um, and it's it's super fascinating throughout the series to see her continually reasserting that and saying, "I have these superpowers, but though that's 
that's just something that happened to me, and it doesn't give me any special responsibilities. Hmm. And, I mean, and, and that, as it were. Yeah, that, that, that's a really good point because it's also what differentiates her as, and, and when you know, when she's perched on the wall, right? She she actually thinks to herself that that you know she's doing the exact same thing uh, to Luke, claiming that other people are doing to her, with following him around, photographing him, you know, surreptitiously. The the only thing that legitimates her is that is that license. Otherwise, she would be just as bad as Kilgrave, um, with the you know stalking people and taking photographs of them, and and then printing them out on color. That's the one thing. Malcolm is a drug addict. How how can he afford to print out that many color photographs? How much toner? I'm assuming it's subsidized. I I, I want to get to that reveal in just a little bit, but um, I, but while we're talking about Jessica talking with Eastman in the apartment, I one of the moments that I love is her like throwing a radiator and saying, because I don't work my shit out on other people, which is like. <laughs> I mean, it's all relative. It's like, no, she's not trying to kill anybody. She is working her shit out on somebody else, just not as she's not misbehaving as badly as Eastman was. But um, her point, though, like you know, my lost parents in an accident, but I don't go around trying to kill every bad driver. Like that's all very well and true. But there's certainly a point of irony about her saying she doesn't work her shit out on other people while she's actually throwing a radiator and like breaking an apartment, which is pretty impressive physically. You know, even just just to see that little moment of her. And when we see her within five minutes of that scene when she's at the support group and she basically, like, this guy is opening up about how Kilgrave ruined his family and forced him to drive him around and abandon his child and the child was crying and he hated himself because he wanted to abandon the child. And all she can think about is how she can use this information Mm -hmm. and... Yeah, she actually so, says screw therapy at one point. I, I, I that's in my notes. Yeah. She said screw therapy. Oh. Like don't no, say that to a bunch of traumatized she people. She said it because the smiling woman, the woman who was forced to smile, said, Is this some sort of reenactment? Like the woman like calls Jessica, possibly inadvertently, but calls Jessica on how she's acting like a bully in that moment. Yeah, that was the most difficult sort of scene in it for me because, I mean, there, there is sort of some truth to say that she doesn't work her shit out on other people because obviously she engages in, right, the classic American trope of self-destructive behavior, drinking, um, and they go to great lengths to emphasize that. Uh, I love the little scene where she's counting up the dollar bills in her pocket trying to see if she has enough money to buy what version of whiskey. And actually, if you track it through the series, you can actually tell how her cases are going monetarily by the kind of whiskey she's buying. Oh, man. One of those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, because I, I, I only noticed this because I, I, I was wondering if there were, like, uh, little Easter eggs. Because they, they all, all the, the, the whiskeys in the series have weird names. And they're not just, like, off-brand Jack Daniels. It's not like, you know, Jeff Donovan or something. It, it's like... <laughs> Highland Fairground. I'm like, what the fuck is Highland Fairground in the Marvel Universe? And then they'll show it's in Kentucky. I'm like, what's in Kentucky in the Marvel Universe? So I became a nerd. Anyway. Um, well, no, no. The, I thought she was she was drinking wild turkey. Like, that's not... That's not... But it wasn't called... It was, it was called, like... I mean, obviously, they can't use wild turkey itself. It's a bottle that looks like wild turkey, but it isn't. And 
I don't know. I was looking for Easter eggs because I wasn't getting enough Marvel crossover. So, uh, um, I was gonna say that like, that like there's a whole Thor arc that's in Kentucky, but I think it's actually in Iowa or Nebraska. Yeah, Kentucky, yeah. The, no, it's Kansas. Isn't it Kansas? Or maybe I'm thinking of Evan and Sean. No, that's Superman. No, I don't know. Yeah, I, ha- I have the trade. It's flat plains, not like hilly mountains. Well, in the comics, it's Oklahoma. That's it, thank you. Oh, it's Oklahoma, okay. That's what Thor's, that's what, yeah. Thank you. If Evan is from Kansas, but the Thor thing is in Oklahoma. Look, I don't know. There's square states. I'm, I'm not, I'm not good on that kind of thing. But I can tell <laughs> I, you. I should be better at this. I'm a Midwesterner, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> True. Oh, my gosh, though. So, like, Avery's dad is just like, because I, I don't think we have his dad, but, you know, I don't think we have his name, but that, that guy, oh, my gosh, this son just killed me. And of course, Kilgrave, right? Kilgrave uses a very polished, very like you know dressed up like African American guy as a driver. Yeah, and if you look at the way that scene is blocked, um, there you see several other people at the table, and they're all also black. Hmm. Like there's two other people that are within the shot most of the time when he's telling the story, and they're both also black. Interesting. Huh. I mean, he is a slave master. I guess it makes sense. But yeah. I that's something I I just I started rewatching the whole series of podcast and I stopped it up before and I'm going to keep going forward and that's something I might want to track just to see if because the little girl's black the his driver the woman who makes a smile is fun. Yeah. Cello the cellist is white. The jacket guy is white. Yeah. The smiling woman looked mixed race. Um, No, I mean, not particularly. Not particularly. I assumed she was black. I thought she was. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember who else we actually caught. I think those were the main people whose stories we heard um, about what happened to them. Yeah. And it makes sense that he would want the jacket from the rich white guy he identifies with and then for his tasks and entertainment would want. Ah, there's like now there's this weird minstrel show aspect of this. But oh, uh, that's a lot of it. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna be quiet and for Brittany, a few minutes and think about this. Y'all y'all keep going. Okay. I <laughs> wanted to go back to something we 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 skipped that I forgot about. What was that? Trisha Paul went to kill grave, that's what it was. Yep. Go ahead. Patricia's fake apology to, to Kilgrave to get him to not go after her. I mean, it's just his idea, obviously. Uh, and I did. I definitely was like trying to imagine what I, as a listener of the Trish show, would be making of this apology, not knowing the context. And it must be weird to have heard that and being like, "What? What is you? Who is this man? What?" I, I felt like that scene was very like. To me, there was this weird. Gamergate vibe from it, where uh, you know she kind of went after him. Kilgrave threatened her, and then she's backing off, apologizing. And you know, even if it's a, a like a fake apology, like there's just you know, you know, Scott mentioned before is that you know a lot of MRA folks are kind of glomming onto Kilgrave as with their hero, um, and the the series dives in and out of like this Gamergate vibe for me. But like that scene in particular. 
I really almost like imagined it was a Twitter fight that was going on, and this was kind of like the end result of that. Like the 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 crowds popped on and and tore her to pieces, and she's like at this point backing off, no matter like how not true it is, just to get him to calm down. So she's like, I've been listening to you guys kind of go around this in my. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead, finish. Oh, oh no, no, sorry. You can you go on. I, I was making a snarky remark about a woman, the woman affiliated with Gamergate, who constantly offends Gamergate accidentally and then has to apologize to them en masse. Like, yeah. You said that wrong. You're supporting us, but you said that wrong. And um, <laughs> then they pile on, and then and then Adam Baldwin says, right. "Leave her alone." And then they're all like, "Okay, Adam, you're you know Jane, whatever." Yep. Um, but sorry, go on. No, and I'm I was while I was listening to you talk, I was like, "Why is this?" not a familiar thing that I realized, oh, I'm a sports fan. You see this stuff all the time with like, oh yeah, I was drunk because I'm an idiot and here I am apologizing and you don't know the context because there was some kind of lawsuit that you don't know about unless ESPN is constantly bombarding your phone with updates on every football player arrest because you do blog about it. Um, no, but that that's <laughs> something that, to me, is very, very familiar, complete with the, like, half the time you don't know exactly who they're apologizing to and why, but you know that, like, there was someone in, like, the team's management that's saying, like, don't say any names, don't be specific, don't say anything else that they can pile on you for, just say you're sorry and move on. And they always sound that canned and that anxious. Mm. And it's very, that very lawyerly. frequently. Yeah, and it's very frequently men of color that are put in that position in, in professional sports. And that's really what it put me in mind of. Mm. Well, I can totally see that. Yeah, I can, I can see that being very similar. Yeah. Although I associate that right now so much with Johnny Manziel. It's like I'm not thinking people tell I've just seen Johnny Manziel apologize for something that ended up on Twitter that I never saw because it already got taken down like a week ago. And he's very Sucking sorry. Sucking as a QB? Oh, that's a whole other thing. I'm a Browns yeah. fan, so it's a touch, touchy spot. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. I don't know the names of these things. I am confused. Please I'm just, sorry that you're a Browns fan. It'll get better someday. Uh, I'll, I'll just go back to the 80s with Gozar. It'll make it all better. Yes, yes, sports ball very much, I'm sure, yes. <laughs> um, all of your sports ball are confusing to I. Um, let, oh, uh, I'm still going semi-chronologically through my notes, so I realize that this might sound random to other people, but this is the order of the show, roughly. Um, uh, the look on Cop's face when, Jet, when um, Trish finally lets him into the apartment He's so happy that for almost a second, or a second, I almost cared about him. For just a second, almost cared. Um, and uh, then, it, and then the scene where they're sitting on either side of the table. I this camera is very, it's going, it's going from their heads and it's panning down really slowly. And I had such trepidation. I was like. Is it going to pan down and they're playing footsie, or is it panning down and someone's going to pull a gun on someone? Like, I had real trepidation with that low, really slow pan down. And then there's nothing. You know, there's no payoff in this episode. It's very strange. That, 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 if I'm thinking of the same scene, it's, it's where they're on opposite sides of the table and it's sort of a medium-long mm-hmm. shot. Yeah, it, it, the, the scene that that reminded me of is basically the entire movie of Rope, um, the, the Hitchcock film. 
Yeah, uh, totally. And so, but it's a glass table, so it, it sort of seemed like a you know little in joke for Hitchcock fans because you can't actually hide a dead body in a glass table, right? It has. The <laughs> table's glass. I don't. I thought it, it was brown. I thought it was glass. I thought it was like a brown slab table. Well, there's multiple tables in the apartment, but I think the one in that particular scene was a thick table. Like you could not, as, as you panned down, you could not. It was like one of those podium tables where you like, if your legs are oh. underneath it, like you can't see them from the side. But maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Well, then maybe the rope, rope, rope comparison is even more apt because now you're just saying, "What's in the table? What's in the table?" Um, my yeah, Brad Pitt Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that, I mean it's a. There are a lot of scenes, like, and the, the camera work throughout the series. This is this is one of the things, and, and it, it, it's something that, that that Daredevil did too, right? Um, it really slowed the pace down. It's not like Man in the High Castle slow, where we're getting these long shots of, that just linger forever. I don't know if y'all watched that yet, but um, but this is okay. It's, it's excellent. Definitely watch it. Uh, but this is a. Uh, the Marvel Universe on TV and and Agents of Shield does this too. I, I no, we don't want to talk about that apparently, but um, <laughs> but it, but it does it as well. Like it, it it's a way to make something appear character driven. Just by having these lingering shots, your eyes start to wander the screen, and 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 you 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 have to you start to look at people. It, it, what I, when I when I taught film, what I always told people is that a lot of, thinking about these kind of shots, like sitting in a waiting room, you don't want to study everybody's face, but you're not sure what else to do. And it makes you a little bit uncomfortable. And so I think part of, you know, part of the effect of that obviously is paranoia because you project that onto the other 15 people in the room and now you oh. think they're all looking at you the way you're looking at them. But, I mean, that's what these sort of scenes force. You, you're, you're scanning for new information, for, for someone to move in a, in, a, in a meaningful way. And when they don't, you, that's why, I mean, you know, a lot of you were t- talking earlier about you start reading micro-expressions. Like, if, if a filmmaker can start making paying attention to micro-expressions, they're doing something right. I mean, you know, it's like... It's an interesting because, shot. Sorry. No, no, I mean, you, you're, you're, you're right. It, it, it's, I mean, on the one hand, I'm just saying something very Quisidian, which is, you know, these are very well-directed. Um, on the other, I'm sort of talking about the pace uh, of, of this series and, and of Daredevil. Um, it's sort of like the anti-Agent Carter, right? Agent Carter is mm-hmm. swashbuckling, you know, Errol Flynn, and, and I said that, and I characterized that. I think I think we did a podcast on Agent Carter. Um, I, maybe. We certainly did. So if yeah, you remember talking I, about I, it, then it's probably on my podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, that, that's like it, it, it's sort of like gratifying to see they're going to Hollywood next season, given that I, I, I characterized it somewhere, I guess. Um, as sort of Errol Flynn swashbuckling, you know, serial drama. Mm-hmm. And, hey, now they're going where they made Errol Flynn swashbuckling. Whereas the other Marvel series are these sort of almost contemplative. And it, 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 it actually, I think it works better on Jessica Jones than Daredevil because the the nature of the, you know, the villain she's fighting. Um, and, you know, I'm sure y'all already talked about, like, the lovely contrast between someone who's really strong and someone who can control the people's minds. Like, that is a... Yeah. It's, 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 it's a lovely sort of 
I don't know, almost sort of incoherent battle, right? I mean, it's it's it, 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 to go to be to be really nerdy and uh, jump over into the other side of the the Marvel universe, um, right? This is this is the whole why Professor X or why the Juggernaut wears the the helmet, right? The only the only the only reason is because he needs to keep his brother Professor X out of his head, right? Um, I was just going to bring up um, that, that it's the that it's the central. It's one of the central things in X Men, in like all kinds of ways. It's like I, <laughs> that, that again. I think that that's a path that you don't need to start me on. Um, <laughs> and we can talk about Shield, and I think that this is a good time to talk about Shield because I agree well, we're only that it's an hour one of two, and we got seven more. Sorry. Seriously. <laughs> yeah, no, but I think it, I think it is one of the things that connects these two is that they do have sort of a similar pacing. And as much as the first season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was kind of infuriating because you were not used to that pacing yet, the farther that show goes, the more it really owns that you're going to sit and wait. And you're going to, like, stare at Coulson until you figure out what's going on. And I think that Jessica Jones runs with that a lot farther in really Mm. interesting ways. One of the interesting mysterious shots in this particular episode was Jessica, in a moment of frustration, near the end of the episode, sort of walks, this is on her way to the support support group, quote, she walks into the street, she stands out, she sees the mass of people coming at her and going from each direction. She holds her arms out either side like a weather vane you know, swinging them amongst the streams of people going past her on the streets. And that shot lasts, and the camera goes up and it kind of pulls out and you can see, you know, more and more traffic around her. That's a long shot to be a silent shot. I mean, there's some general, like, background noise, and that's it. Like, there's no dialogue, and it goes on for a while. Well, because any one of those people could be Kilgrave. I mean, they do a lot of work with that with the crowd Mm -hmm. shots. And you know they'll do a lot more of this going forward. I'm trying to say this in non spoiler ways, but like yeah, these mm-hmm. these crowd shots become very very. I mean this is this is a show where if, if you're agoraphobic, you you probably don't want to be watching it um, because it'll just feed into all of your complexes. Like they, mm-hmm. you know, there there really is a problem with being in a in, in a room with a hundred other people, and it you know it it uh, or being outside with a hundred other people. Uh, you know, the world is closing in on you. And then they, they do a lot of, you know, the, the, the use of light in the shot that you're thinking of. It, it, it's sort of like an early evening shot, right? And I think it begins sort of like at twilight and ends at, at dark. I, mm-hmm. I watch this around one. Um, but it, it just seems to me like it, it it begins after the sun's already set, but it's still light. And by the time it ends, yes. it's dark, like the world is closed in on her. Like, it's not just the people, it's the... It, it, it's the world, which obviously makes sense on a, on a television show in which there can only be so many characters, um, you know, in, in the respect that television ends up like, you know, uh, Elizabethan drama. It, it, it always has to be someone you know because you only have so many actors. Um, you can only have hmm. so many parts on, on you know. But, um, yeah. Well, I, yes, I, we'll be getting to that in just a moment. The, it's always somebody you know. Um, yeah, well, I mean, you can I I I sort of that that train of thought ran off the rails. So feel free to bring that up now. <laughs> well, yeah, let's let's talk about the reveal that it was Malcolm. Well, one, we can talk about the symbolism of the fact that 
the person who had been used against her was somebody who would be completely ignored and marginalized by society as a whole, being a drug addict, especially like a young man, African-American drug addict, would be someone who would be not noticed by anybody. And to the extent with which Jessica interacts with him is like much more than most people would be doing, you know, with, 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 with someone who was regularly entering their apartment, like who was not supposed to enter their apartment and eating their peanut butter. Um, but it's not surprising that, you know, that, that Malcolm is who Kilgrave chose because weird behavior is expected from Malcolm and because Malcolm is essentially invisible to the public except when he's acting out, you know, the most outrageously. He's an invisible man. To the point where when we were making the list of people who had been affected by Kilgrave that, whose stories were featured in this episode, we, we kind of skipped right over him. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I think you, I, I think they sort of called our attention to it at the beginning of the episode when Eastman is like, he's been trying to open his door for like five minutes, which, you know, the first time I watched this episode, I was like, he's waiting for her to come home. Um, I mean, he's high, oh. but he's not that high. Um, and I didn't been, catch that. Wow. He's been waiting yeah. for Jessica to, to come home. And I mean, it's sort of, you know, it, it's obviously much more, you know, sort of manifest in retrospect, but but the the way that that you know Malcolm happens to be waiting by the door when she and Simpson enter, um, it they they set it up nicely so the reveal didn't feel inorganic. Um, no, it was fantastic. Yeah, of and let's talk about how that shot was how, how that how that how those shots were done. Like you know she gets up, she's watching the footage of, of Bryant Park, and Bryant Park is very Bryant Park in the shot of Bryant Park. And she's seeing these figures, and I did not see someone with a blue striped scarf. I couldn't see that. But, like, midway through as she's zooming in, she gets up, and it cuts to her in, the other, in another room. You know, it cuts to her in another place. And an intercut between the video, the video continuing, whether or not she's at the computer or not, the video footage progresses, and it cuts between her and the other apartment back and forth, and that's when you see in the video footage that it's Malcolm uh, and you see that, like, as she reveals the printouts on his lap, on his printer in, in his apartment, which was a super well-done suspense moment. Yeah, the, I mean, part part of the, the issue here is, is is the sort of classic filmmaker's dilemma when, when, when dealing with the te- detective is that um, most most detective work is really fucking boring. I mean, you, how do you how do you show someone, you know, Watching thirty hours of of, of of footage, you have to find some other way to create narrative momentum. Otherwise, you're just sort of replicating the the boredom that you know. And so, I, I thought it was really well done. Um, see, I, I actually could see Malcolm in, in in the blue and white scarf. I I sort of wonder how big is your TV, Alana? He was sort of clearly there in the the, the, the corner, but um. Like decently uh, big, but like not super close to my head, but decently big. Uh, yeah, it, I guess it's just I have one that's really big and it's in my bedroom, so it's really close. So yeah, uh, basically looking through a like, microscope. You know, but certainly when, but when he pulls the hood back and his hair like comes, you're like, yes, okay. But by that point, you already knew it was him because she's in his apartment. Like he's revealed by her being in his in his apartment prior to him revealing himself on the video. Um, but I almost feel like that's like that's almost like your last chance because I feel like there's all these hints like 
you guys were saying, you just said he's hanging around her apartment. He always seems to be in places that don't make sense. Um, that are like a little too calculated for his level of not having it together. So that was like your last year. So if you didn't get it when we were being subtle in the previous three episodes, here's the hammer that we're going to hit you with to make sure that you get it before it's actually revealed on the screen. Did you get it before it was revealed? I didn't get it, get it, but I felt like it, it was not a surprise to me when it was yeah. revealed in this episode is the best way for me to put it. It's like I could tell that he wouldn't be in the show in the way he was in the show unless he had a connection to Kilgrave. Which I think is a sign of a good reveal, like one that, that is uh-huh. instantly plausible, right? Instant plausibility is, is the the best, is the hallmark of the best sort of suspense reveal. Um, I As to whether or not he would be in the show if he wasn't related to Kilgrave, the, the one thing I take issue with is that... Um, it's one thing the show sort of portrays very well, especially in her relationship with Malcolm, is is the way that that addicts take care of each other, um, which I think is something that that is usually played for like comedy, um, you know, and like an Oliver Stone film or something, or 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 a Quentin Tarantino film, like the way that that addicts sort of have each other's back and stick up for one another. That's a little the peanut butter mm-hmm. scene sort of reminded me of, like. This is one person has come to recognize that she's an addict, but doesn't want to do anything about it. Seeing someone else who is also in in, in the same strait, and you know, you know, in, in the best of all possible worlds, they convince each other to go to NA and AA. But you know, in the real world, they just sort of enable each other by helping each other out. They don't realize they don't see it as enabling. Obviously, they see it as, as caring. Um, and that's going to be something important going forward. I mean, again, without spoiling anything, like, um, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, except there's this whole episode where they're just in the AA meeting and they're all talking about that. Um, we, we already have our, our quote-unquote attic meeting, right, or, or you know, yeah, I guess exactly. it's more of an Al-Anon meeting, Fort like, Ruth. in the episode itself. Um, mm-hmm. uh, people who've been traumatized. But, uh, but yeah, I... I I think the reason that we, we get it backwards, that we see her enter the apartment before uh, we, we, they show uh, Malcolm on the video is, is simply because it, it, it's, that's a way to indicate her disbelief. Like she finds the evidence, and she clearly already saw him on the video, right? Otherwise she wouldn't have gone to his apartment. So it's a way of, 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 of registering her not disbelief, but her desire not to believe, right? Like, I'm going to need evidence more so than just... Because I actually I actually think she knew when he... Uh, when 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 the driver told her, you know, the blue and white scarf. She's been around Malcolm a lot. She probably already had an inkling whose blue and white scarf it was that, hmm. you know, was following, Right? Or who was dropping off the photos? I haven't gone. I didn't. I didn't think to track that through the first three episodes. But so may, I mean, I could be wrong. But I'm guessing that she, she knew who she was looking for in the videos. She just didn't want to find them. Um, huh. Way to put it, I guess. I mean, how how would you feel if you, you know, were basically told that 
one of the only friends, quote unquote friends, that you have a sort of, I don't want to say natural, but non-professional relationship with, non-professional yeah. and non-familial relationship with, that mm-hmm. that they've betrayed you. Although, I mean, would she even consider it a betrayal? I and mean, we don't get that in this episode, we just get the reveal, but like, yeah. since she knows it's a Kilgrave's behest, how how much how much do you think she actually blames oh god the show just tears me apart um i feel so bad for malcolm and the photo of him with his mom that they show you is such like a good little humanizing touch and you also have to just wonder like how long has this been going on for how long has he been under kilgrave's control and to what extent is kilgrave like did Kilgrave find someone who had an addiction and just, and was like, this is an easy person for me to, to hide inside of, essentially? Or did Kilgrave manipulate him into addiction? I mean, who knows? Is, is he self-medicating the same way that Jessica is? And is that like Ooh, a side yeah. effect in some ways of a long-term... Of of be, being controlled that long, that the only way to dull it is some kind of chemical self-medicating. And I'm even thinking of I have a cousin who I'm very fond of, who's a, who who who's a paranoid schizophrenic, and his first way of handling hearing voices and paranoid delusions was to like drink. Um, and he's been sober for a number of years, um, and um, and that that might be that kind of thing. That if you've got this malicious voice in your head for that long, that maybe the only way to drown it out is some kind of addiction. I mean, yeah, that being willlessness, if that's the word. Um, for that long can't be good for mental health and and I mean and we can we can you know bring the metaphor even sort of closer to earth you know a lot of people drink too much because they don't want to deal with daily reality like they they don't want to deal with the, with with you know the travails of day to day living and so they drink too much if if your day to day life involves because i mean they they say in the in the episode right that that um his uh Kilgrave's effects has effect has limits time and distance which mm-hmm. i mean obviously is a is sort of trauma therapy speak in that context but in this context it means uh malcolm has to be seeing kilgrave on a regular basis and being taken over by kilgrave regularly in order for him to engage in this level of surveillance and that i mean that, that that's got to be worse than just you know a nine to five job which is enough to drive a lot of people to crime. Um, right. God. This is so sad. <sighs> Malcolm. Uh, on, on the other hand, I sort of want to introduce some note of hope because <sighs> Jessica Jones could still tear down a building if she needed to, right? She's she jump over one or tear, tear one down. I find it interesting that, right, She she's basically the original Superman, like in, mm-hmm. that's even the joke with with the laser eyes, like, jumping. He didn't have jumping, laser, not yeah. flying. No. Yeah, all he could do was jump and was really strong. Um, 
basically the, the Kool-Aid man on a pogo stick, right? Uh, and so then and the idea there was the laser eyes, right? All of the shit that got added on to Superman later. Um, you know, there's that part of us when we're watching this you, that, that really wants to think, pick up the phone and, and call the, the flag waver, right? Or the green guy. You know, you you can... She has the access. Right? And not, not to, you know, kind of cross oh. over to the comics too much, but, right, the first issue of, 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 uh, of Alias, right, has that conversation with Cap at the end of it. Mm-hmm. I mean... I mean, we know why in the meta story she can't do it here. It's because of money. But it does seem like realistically in a world where there are superheroes. Like, you know, the thing is, she's also operating in a world where there's no Jean Grey because of Marvel not owning X-Men. Copyright, like, yeah. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what helpful telepaths there are available in this part of, you know, like, I, I don't know actually of who amongst the superheroes that exist in her world would even be helpful in this situation. Not really any of them. Like, there are Marvel Vision. superheroes. Who could, but yeah, but not really. Like, how is Vision helpful for this? I don't. He has the Mind Stone, and he should be able to. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. I don't, maybe. I'm just. I'm, just like, I'm, I'm kind of stuck on this whole like original Superman thing, especially just looking physically at at Kristen Ritter, where she's got that like the porcelain skin and the dark hair, and that even though she's you know this fairly small woman that she looks like Superman in a certain way. Much more hmm. than Supergirl does. Um, Much more than Supergirl does. She she looks like she looks like Rule 63 Superman. She doesn't look like Supergirl. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not sure, I'm not quite sure how Jewish she is because early Superman looked, you know, hella Jewish. Yeah. But, um, well, I mean, she doesn't but, uh, have, like, the disturbingly blue eyes or, like, I mean, there's a lot of differences, but I see where you guys are going. Yeah. And I, she basically has the same powers. I mean, that's the other thing. So it might be Marvel making fun of yeah. DC. I don't know. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm just saying that there, there's the part of us that, that, that motivates us to keep reading superhero comics and watching superhero, you know, televisual fair, uh, even though we're adults, um, that 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 sort of hopeful, you know, that moment when in, in Batman Begins where Joffrey says, you know, Batman will save us, and we're like, yeah, 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 fuck yeah, Batman will save, right? Um, Goddamn, Joffrey ruined that movie for me. I'm like, no, Batman, <laughs> leave him, leave him. You don't know, you just don't know. Um, <laughs> but but uh, uh, but you know, that that appeal is is, is still present in this. And it gets totally twisted around when Jessica, you know, unleashes on the Eastmans. And, um, but uh, it's still there. And um, up to this point in the series, we haven't got that, that moment, that, you know, Daredevil episode two moment, right? With the, um, the fight scene in the hallway, right? Where, where we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is, I'm going to get behind this guy moment. Um, and we haven't had one of those up to this point. Um, but uh, and I'm not saying uh, there's no spoilers or anything but uh, we we keep I, I don't know about y'all but I keep waiting for it like I, I'm hoping for one like I, I want to see 
these powers put to good use, not to be simply a burden. Um, you know, the excuse for her alcoholism or, or the excuse for her state of affairs compared to, you know, Trish's and uh, that sort of thing. I'll stop rambling, I promise. <laughs> That's okay. Um, or I could keep going. Um, well, no, I know, one, there... note that I, one note that I one note that I actually had just this is a broader piece that is a bit out of what we're talking about now. But I want to give a shout out to the soundtrack during the sequence where Jess is following Carlisle, um, doing her detective thing, following him. It's such perfect Hollywood detective background music. And it definitely stood out from the soundtrack from the rest of the ish, of the uh, episode. I'm trying to remember what it was. Oh, I want. Uh, uh, it was a jingle. I watched it, like, it, watch like it on mute with subtitles. It was a pretty. It. Oh. it was a pretty. I mean, it was pretty minimal, but it, it had like a very polished Hollywood feel to it. But it was like the sort of quiet, minimal, plinky plinky piano thing, but not anxiety-inducing. They do a lot of anxiety-inducing music in this. This, was, this wasn't that. This was like the, this is interesting. What could possibly be coming with this? Who knows what will happen behind any turn? Like the sort of, when detectives and mysteries are fun, as opposed to when detectives and mysteries are paranoia and the whole world is crushing down around you in paranoia, which is generally the feeling of this episode, but not the feeling of that particular moment or scene until she gets inside the building and then it should get scary with the whole, uh, they're calling from within the building Oh yeah. Uh, her, her, this is also yeah. an episode where you don't hear her voiceover a whole lot. There are a couple moments, but not that much. There's like one moment or something. Yeah, like this is where I think it starts trailing off, and it's not used hmm. as much. Almost like this show's transitioning somehow. I mean, we might not get voiceover, but we we literally have a ten minute scene where we're in her head, um, watching her, you know, vet the the potential victims. Yeah. Um. So they might have been wanted wanted to balance that out. Like, you, you, you can only do so much first-person narration if you're also going to do first-person perspective. Um, otherwise, the world will close in around you. It'll be like one of those dogma films that, you know, entirely from a first-person perspective and it's just, you're like trapped. Um, mm. Or like Cloverfield, where you're like stuck in the head of that one, you know, douchebag running around with a camera. Uh, oh, I hate that film. Gosh worst um <laughs> uh, we have not heard where is my mind because i'm i don't know about y'all oh, i'm God. getting really tired of, of hearing that song i mean it, no, it would fit perfectly on this show right it would fit perfectly they, they won't. but no they won't do we, it. we've they already had it. except that it's a dead metaphor it's it's that and hallelujah and i'm sure there's a couple of others that are just on the like just don't play them list don't fucking yeah. If somebody plays Hallelujah, I will punch them. I will. I'm, I'm just going to say that right now. Don't matter if it's Leonard Cohen's version or the guy whose name I'm forgetting, who's young. Jeff Buckley. Or, no, that Jeff Buckley version they, still gets me. In the, no, no, the in, dead in guy. The no, not the dead guy. The other one. Whatever. The point is, there will be no. There will be no <laughs> Hallelujah, dear God. I will scream. I don't. I think was so is. unhappy with them using Hallelujah and Daredevil. But I, I mean, I was even more unhappy with the choice of brown sugar. But I, I was also, but that was whatever. We can all listen to that episode. You, if you guys want to hear me, complain, but, but about slavery, what? 
Yeah. And what yeah. I mean, so many reasons. You can all go listen to the episode where we talked about Daredevil, or two episodes where she talked about Daredevil. But anyway, yeah, I don't think, you know, this show actually hasn't used any really known songs. Like the rock song that Audrey uses to, um, I meant to sound hound it and I didn't, but it basically sounds like, okay, it's this contemporary song that people probably know, but isn't like an iconic song of any kind um, that Audrey has to cover up her gunshots. There really haven't been any songs that were, I mean, there's I Got a Woman. They they played, um, they played I Got a Woman uh, way across town. She's good to me. Oh, yeah. When, um, when uh, they're entering Luke's bar and they have another, they have another sort of electric blues song. I mean, Luke comes with his own blues soundtrack. But there hasn't really been, but all of that music is diegetic, right? There haven't really been any extra diegetic editorial, like this song is what's happening to you right now, popular songs used in the show at this point. But we're only on episode no. No, no, they have and, um, and they seem to be very consciously avoiding it. And when there's music that's representing a mental state, it tends to be instrumental and jazzy and minimal. Although, remember the, the yes. second teaser for the show uh, did use bad, uh, bad reputation, right? When she's in the bar. Mm-hmm. Which I know is a Joan Jett song, but I still associate it with Freaks and Geeks. Um, huh. <laughs> But it's also I mean, like yeah. that's not in the well maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they'll actually will have it in the show, but so far they haven't really been doing that. But yeah, the soundtracking has been excellent. I, I can't take any more where's my mind between the leftovers and and um uh uh Mr. Robot and mm. uh there've been there have been so many like weird versions of, of Where's My Mind and this is the one show where it would sort of be appropriate to use that like dirge version that the Pixies did of it, um, uh, but yeah, that I don't know. I'm, I'm, just, I'm glad it's it one has. of my favorite songs on its own terms, but it is not allowed to be used in TV anymore. It's dead. It yeah. Really good on the, I mean, do you all watch The Leftovers? I don't. I don't. It was really. No. It was used nope. well. No. It was. It, it was used as the. Uh, I don't know music terms that that well, but it was used it, as the recurring theme in the score. So you would just get these hints of it um, played with other instruments. Uh, so you get the, the hoo-hoo from Kim Deal or you'd get the, I don't know, it, it was done very, very well, very low-key, but I'm still sort of tired of it. Uh, God, see, I, no one will talk to me about The Leftovers because no one else has watched it. Sorry. Um, it's so good. and And it's, so bad. It actually fits really well with Jessica Jones. It's all about trauma, but I will save that huh. for someone else's podcast. Well, I mean, okay. it's, it's about it's about the people who are left behind. When like, how does a society deal with the fact that you know four percent of the population just disappeared one day, um, and they work through all the typical human emotions via this premise, and it's it's horrifyingly beautiful. Um, Plus, that was Christopher Eccleston who does that thing where you're like, it's the doctor. No, it's not the doctor. Um, smiling doctor. Oh. But um, uh, are we are we thinking of wrapping up? Or we're we're still like six and a half yeah, hours. Yeah, I think short. I think we sh- I think we should. <laughs> yeah, the cat keeps walking into the room, giving me a dirty look and leaving. No, I'm oh. covered in cats yeah, well, right now. I got that. I got we can't yeah, have that. I got two of them <laughs> on me. Threatening well, to I want to thank you guys so much for for joining us and for sharing so much of your time. Um, you guys have such interesting perspectives on this. Do you want to open up, before we go to the final closing, 
I do want to open up real quick just to see if there's anything that you've been wanting to say that we have left out. Like, please go for it now. About the show or, like, self-promotion mm-hmm. or? Self-promotion is in a minute. Now is the show. We'll, we'll go with the show first, self-promotion next. And then Locke goes. I covered uh, my whole list. Okay. Yeah, same here, actually. Oh, cool. So now it's time for self-promotion. And then Locke goes. <laughs> and drink. Um, Sarah, tell people where they can find you and sports ball and other things. Oops. We'll go with Scott first, and then Sarah second. Uh, well, I don't want anyone else to find me. I'm I'm already way too visible. Um, my Twitter feed is a. Uh, I can't even look at my fucking notifications anymore because it's all white supremacists and MRA people. Um, yeah, uh, if you want to find me, you can find me at salon.com. It's a very obscure little site on the internet that nobody who hates me reads. Um, and if you click on any article there, you can find my. Twitter handle, which is, I think, Scotty Kaufman, uh, and then uh, my salon email address. I'm, I, I would love to hear from anyone who just doesn't want to throw hate at me for, you know, 18 um, all-caps uh, paragraphs. So, yeah, I, I, I don't have any ongoing pro- upcoming projects or anything. But, but I guess I, I could always say that I'll just do my general thing. If anyone can score me tickets to Hamilton, please do, and I will find some way to repay you. Okay. Um, that's not really self-promotion. That's just begging. Uh, it's an ask. It's a reasonable ask. Yeah. God. That's it for me. Is it my turn? Or, okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, I'm Sarah Rasher. I am Padishah, which is P-A-S underscore D-E-C-H-A-T on Twitter. Um, and my personal blog is thefinersports.sportsblog.com, and I'm also the finer sports on Tumblr. Um, so my personal blog is mostly about figure skating. Sometimes there's football and hockey, and I promised my Twitter followers, most of which are there for the figure skating, um, that I would put in one skating reference. So I just want to note that I have figured out why I love that and superhero comics, and it's um, teenagers with superpowers wearing spandex appear in both. Um, <laughs> Um, and I also occasionally write for Graphic Policy, and I write many TV reviews for therainbowhub.com. There should be a recap of Brooklyn Nine-Nine on there any minute. So, yeah, so I'm all over the Internet, and you can follow me, although a lot of places I talk about ice skating a lot. But real quick, what are the shows that you cover for Rainbow Hub? Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Um, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Blind Spot, Rosewood, and Teen Wolf. Gotcha. Thank you. Brooklyn Nine-Nine this week. I nearly died. Um, that's all I'll say. <laughs> I, it that was, was a good one. Episode. It was a really good one. <laughs> yeah. That was, I, 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 I hate to say I LOL'd, but I literally LOL'd um, painfully and while drinking something. So messily, I guess, is the other way to say it. All right. <laughs> painfully and messily. <laughs> Okay, and and in our and in our Brooklyn Nine Nine podcast, where we were all where we were also talking about the leftovers, we will continue with that. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot think of two shows more antithetical. Uh, both of which are great, though. All right. Okay, well, thanks guess, again for having me all. Yeah, I guess after we're done with this, we'll have to do a leftovers podcast. Um, so yeah, <laughs> thanks right. for joining us, both of you.
Appreciate it. Thank you very much, and I'll talk to you all again soon. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. All right, so that wraps up another episode of Jonesing for Jessica. Uh, we've got another one this coming Thursday, correct? Yes, we do. This Thursday at 10, we'll be joined with Logan Dalton. You probably know him from the podcast Fantheon, which is a really great comics podcast people should be listening to in addition to ours. Um, and he also writes uh, about comics for the Rainbow Hub, and he's the comics editor for Pop Optic. And we'll also be joined by Janine, who is a um, who writes about comics for graphic policy. Yes, so uh, we'll be discussing episode five. Yeah, so we're going to be discussing episode five. That will be on uh, this Thursday. I'll have the episode up on uh, Blog Talk Radio tomorrow, um, as well as the archive of this, which will be going on SoundCloud tomorrow, as well as. Uh, Blog Talk Radio and iTunes later this evening. So if you came in late and would like to catch up, you can go back and start from the beginning, or you can listen to it again, or share it around with your friends. All those things are awesome, and we, of course, appreciate you listening. So thanks very much. Uh, until next or this Thursday, I am Brett. And I'm Ilana. Thanks for listening, and keep it geeky.